We are in the second chapter of Revelation and we are looking at Jesus Christ's letters to the seven churches and we are looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna, one of the only letters, I think there are two, that have no criticisms at all. And what is significant is that this church that isn't criticised by Christ is going through a terrible time. The believers in Smyrna, it was a big city and it had a large Jewish community, were being opposed uh, by the Jewish religious leaders. They were slandering them uh, and grassing on them to the Roman authorities. And uh, because uh, the Christians would not confess Caesar as God, uh, they were ostracized in uh, their positions. Uh, they were not given promotion in work. Some of them lost their jobs and they were in great poverty as a result. And also Jesus is warning that it's going to get worse. If you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. And death is going to come upon some of you. You're going to be imprisoned and you are going to be put to death. That doesn't sound encouraging, does it? But what we started looking at last week was the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, uh, encouraging uh, this congregation that's going through great difficulty. And we've started looking at the first encouragement, which we'll continue looking at this evening. And then I'll mention a couple of other encouragements uh, for us. Because we may not be having it quite as bad as Smyrna, but as Paul said to Timothy, everyone who desires to live godly shall suffer one form or another uh, persecution. And we need the encouragements of Jesus Christ. The word to encourage means to strengthen uh, one's arms. And don't we need that in our day and age? It's tough, isn't it? being a Christian today. Uh, and we have a saviour who's more than match for the circumstances we may be facing. So let's read again. It's the shortest letter, so it won't take long. Revelation 2, verses 8 down to 11. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead, and came to life, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the first encouragement we've started looking at? It is quite simply this. Jesus is sovereign. Do you know what sovereign means? In complete control. So there's mention of 10 days of persecution uh, that doesn't mean 10 literal days. It's a symbolic term for a short period of suffering. 
and the length of the suffering we may have to go through is ordained by Jesus Christ. The devil, yes, is attacking, but he's on a leash, and the one holding the leash is none other than Jesus, and the length of the leash and the amount of time that we are attacked is determined by Jesus Christ as well. He's doing it in order that our faith might be purified and that we might become stronger. Uh, that's the first uh, encouragement. Let's carry on on this first encouragement. Jesus is sovereign also. In this, he knows. That's what he says to these uh, poor, bruised and battered Christians. Verse 9, I know your works, your trials, and your poverty, and I know the slander that you are suffering. That's what the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews refers to. I know, he says. Isn't that an encouragement? There was a pastor in Wales. Whenever you met him, say if it was after a conference, just in the porch of a church, he wouldn't speak to you. He would just put his hand on your shoulder. And it was quite a good grip that he had. And it just encouraged you. <laughs> he didn't have to say anything. It was as if he was communicating with that touch. It's all right. I know. I know. Now multiply that by infinity and you get Jesus's touch on the shoulder. Brother, sister, whatever you may be going through, it may not be what the Smyrnans are going through, but whatever problems you are facing... It's all right. I know. And for Jesus to say, I know, it's not for us uh, to say, I know, is it? Because our knowledge is at best very, very limited. But Jesus is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows not just the outward circumstances, but the inner conflicts in our hearts. He knows the devil doesn't see the hearts. Jesus does. Isn't that encouraging? It's scary, but it's comforting as well to just realize that he knows He knows what it is to be poor. Now, I don't know if any of you here are in dire straits in terms of finances, but certainly in other parts of the world, Christians experienced that big time. And Jesus knows. He grew up in a poor home. He lost his earthly father when he was still young. Uh, and when he started his ministry, he wasn't a prosperity gospel preacher. He didn't even have a place to lay his head down. He didn't even have spare change on him. He knows what it is to suffer need. If you're a student, isn't that encouraging? Well, in my time, students were in poverty. <laughs> he knows what it's like to go through trials uh, a period of trial is uh, really horrible, isn't it? H however you describe it, it is like going through a furnace, a baptism of fire. Listen, 
He knows what it's really like to be attacked by the devil. He was tempted in all points, and that means all points. Whatever temptation you or I may be facing, and it doesn't matter how heinous, how horrible that temptation is, he has experienced it. He knows. He knows what it's like to suffer disappointments. He knows what it's like to grieve, to lose loved ones. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his closest friends. He knows what it's like to be slandered by the religious leaders. He knows what it's like to go on trial. He knows what it's like to be put in prison, to be falsely accused. He knows what it's like to hang on the cross to suffer, as it were, uh, what these Christians were about to suffer. And he knows what it's like to die. No one else knows that, but he does. And he is encouraging you and me this evening by saying, it's all right, son, daughter. I know. I know. He said to his disciples in John's Gospel, Assuredly, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Remember the word that I said to you. My friends, we are following the same path that our Saviour trod. And he knows exactly what it's like. I can't communicate this clearly enough. But when you are climbing mountains that you're completely unfamiliar with and the terrain is not just difficult but dangerous, to have a guide who knows, who knows, is a huge comfort and security. And through this maze of a world, we have one in Jesus Christ. I remember years ago, uh, God speaking to me very powerfully in one of our hymns, and this was the stanza. Well, I know, this may speak to somebody here. Well, I know thy trouble. O oh, my servant, O oh, my child true, thou art very weary, I was weary too. But that toil shall make thee someday all mine own, and the end of sorrow shall be near my throne. I know, I know. A few years ago in the Bala Ministers Conference, we had good speakers, but the most powerful thing I heard was just a couple of sentences spoken by Errol Davis's brother, John Davis, who I think at the time had his diagnosis of terminal cancer. So he was really going through it. And uh, he was asked just to give us a few words of encouragement so he came up to the front with his stick, and I don't know if he pointed his stick. I can remember him doing that. I don't know if he did that, but I remember the words that he spoke. It was something along these lines. Trust in the Lord. That's all you have to do. Trust in the Lord. And it resonated, because that's what he was doing. Trust in your Savior. He knows the way he takes, and just completely like a little child trusting their parents trust in him so that that's uh, the first encouragement 
He is sovereign, and he's sovereign not just in determining the length of the opposition, but he knows, he knows. The next encouragement here, and I do find this amazing, he has conquered death. Uh, Listen to him a little earlier on in the letter. These things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Uh, I like to call Jesus the death defeater. The death defeater. Don't you like that title? I know of nobody else who's dealt with death. As Christians, we are united to Christ. So this morning we were looking at Adam being our head. The moment we are saved, we are transferred to Jesus as our head. He's our representative. So when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him, right? He died to sin. So we died to sin there and then, Romans 6. But when he rose from the grave, we also rose with him to newness of life. And we are identified with him. And now he has gone ahead of us, as I mentioned in the first point, to heaven. And we are following in his footsteps So whether we like it or not, we are identified with him. And this is the encouragement here, especially for Christians who will have to die by martyrdom. It's all right. I have conquered that last enemy. You are simply going the way that I have gone. And listen, even if we don't get persecuted and put to death in that way, we're still going to (laughs) die. Unless the Lord returns first we're all one day going to die. And what greater comfort than this, that Jesus has conquered death for us. Uh, You must understand the imagery that's being used here. He's talking about regeneration. Made alive. We were made alive when we became Christians. But that life continues, and it continues into eternity when it's going to blossom. Now, the city of Smyrna had uh, been attacked and ravaged by the Macedonians. Uh, Let me get my history right. The Macedonians were a number of centuries before the New Testament, right? And 300 years before this letter was written, an urban regeneration scheme took place in Smyrna that rebuilt a lot of the city, and it was rebuilt on a grand scale. Uh, Nothing like, uh, you know, some of the urban regeneration schemes we have witnessed. That's been small fry compared to what they did in Smyrna. Uh, I remember when I studied geography at school in the 1980s, we had field trips to Tiger Bay, uh, Cardiff Bay today, and the urban regeneration there was just beginning. Uh, But even in... uh, A few decades we've seen uh, how they've transformed that once very rough part of Cardiff. Urban regeneration. Well, think of the urban regeneration in Smyrna on a much, much bigger scale. And what uh, Jesus is saying here through John is this. uh, That urban regeneration which your city uh, had 300 years ago, Oh, that was something glorious. But listen, there is something more glorious that is happening to you. Little, insignificant, persecuted church. 
You are being transformed. You have already been made alive by the Spirit when you were joined to Christ, but you are being changed by these persecutions from glory to glory. And when you die, as you will, whether by martyrdom or by natural means, you will then be changed. Your body will be perfect. You will have a perfect soul and you will dwell in a perfect heaven and a perfect earth. Now then, even in lockdown, even in a day of spiritual dearth, isn't that a reason to be encouraged? What's the trajectory of the unbeliever? The moment we come out of the womb, the clock is ticking, and the trajectory is from life to death. Isn't that the case? Jesus talks here not just about physical death. He talks about the second death. Verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is that? Well, we're all going to die physically unless the Lord returns. So physical death is when the soul, the immortal spirit, uh, leaves the body and the soul goes into eternity. But then for unbelievers, there's another death after that where Body and soul, because we'll all be raised in the resurrection, but unbelievers, body and soul, will be separated from God, the source of all life, forever and forever. That's the second death, a horrible, horrible existence. But for the Christian, there is no second death. Our physical death is but an entrance into that eternity where our eternal life, which has already begun here on earth, will blossom, blossom. And so the trajectory for the Christian is not from life unto death. For the unbeliever, that's all it's doing. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. For the Christian, it's from death unto life. It's getting better. It's getting better. Because even though we're following the same path, our bodies are decaying and dying one day, our souls are going to soar. And when we have our new body, it'll be a perfect body. And as I said, we'll dwell in a perfect place. Now then, what can be more encouraging The title of Haslam's, William Haslam, a minister in the 19th century in Cornwall. The title of his autobiography, From Death Unto Life. I love that. When a Christian has a birthday party, it's a proper celebration because it's onwards and upwards. I, I like the way Douglas Kelly has described this encouragement here. Remember now, these Christians were really many of them who were reading this letter were going to be put to death and this is how Jesus is speaking in the words of Douglas Kelly don't worry I have passed through the territory of death already I have taken all of its terror away from you now the only thing that awaits you on the other side of death is holding my hand as we walk together into the new beauties of resurrection joy 
Didn't Paul say something similar to Timothy in our reading? Paul was in prison, about to be executed, and he says, it's all right, Timothy, it's all right. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life, life and immortality to light. Through the gospel, it might be dark now, but glory, glory is going to dawn as I enter into Emmanuel's land over the river of death. We often use whales as an illustration of paradise, don't we, or heaven? So let's turn it the other way around and think of Somerset as heaven. Do you know why I'm saying that? In Welsh, Somerset is called Gladrhav, the land of summer. And sometimes when you see Somerset from across the Bristol Channel, it does look something like the land of summer, doesn't it? The only problem is the water in between. How do I get there? And don't you feel a bit like that when facing death? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he has gone ahead. I believe that he has conquered death. But oh, I'm afraid of the crossing. I'm afraid of the Jordan. I'm afraid of the water. I'm afraid of the process of dying. Who isn't? I've been at enough deathbeds to know that death is an enemy. A number of years ago, when we had camp, senior camp, uh, we went to Southampton for a church history trip. I don't know what the people in Southampton made of us, but we were standing in the docks in Southampton, looking over the Solent water to the New Forest. And Isaac Watts once stood in the same place, and he was thinking like Somerset, like heaven, and he wrote this, There is a land of pure delight, where saints immortal reign, infinite day excludes the night, and pleasures banish pain. There everlasting spring abides. Think of that. Even now, there's a bit of green coming into the woods. Uh, there's some pansies growing uh, on uh, my front lawn. Uh, the snowdrops have been out and gone. The daffodils are up. Uh, there's a slight warmth in the air. There everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers. Death, though, like a narrow sea divides the heavenly land from ours. Oh, says Watts, could we make our doubts remove those gloomy doubts that rise and see the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes, like we sometimes see Somersets from the Vale of Glamorgan, and it's so clear. Or oh, may we so walk through this valley of the shadow, and may we just have glimpses of the true land of summer, the true land that is green and of pure delights. And may we have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, you know, and then when our home call comes, uh, it won't be a shock. We, we're all struggling, aren't we, to prepare for death. But may these words of Christ encourage us. Don't worry, I who was dead and came to life. And then one last encouragement. These Christians were poor, right? They were poor. They didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. And maybe 
we're not materially poor, but maybe we're thinking we're not much, are we? I know we're a large church, but in comparison to the events that the world holds, we're, we're, we're very small. We might think of ourselves as insignificant, as lacking in influence. Listen, this is what Jesus says to the Smyrnans. And it's an aside. I love the aside here. It's in brackets. You are rich, but you are rich. And he says the same to you and me. This is the encouragement. We are rich. Do you realize you're rich this evening? One of the saddest things are people who are wealthy, but they're not aware of it. Uh, There's a true story, isn't there, of uh, somebody in the gold rush in California who actually owned a piece of land and all he lived in was uh, battered huts and he had this land that wasn't very fertile and he lived and died a poor man. And yet he was rich because underneath him was a gold vein and he didn't realise it. He didn't realise it. And we often live like that man. We live as if we're spiritual paupers, whereas in Christ, standing on the solid ground that is him, we have riches, riches that the world knows nothing of. In his name lie greater treasure than the riches found on earth. We're spiritually rich. Uh, I haven't got time to go through the jewels that are ours in Christ. We're forgiven. What more do we need? Forgiveness. We're not going to hell. We're going to heaven. We have been born of the Spirit. There is this life of Christ bubbling within us. We are adopted into his family. So even if we are renounced by our earthly family, we have been accepted by the family of heaven. We may not be approved by the world, but we have the approval of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters in the end. One with God is a majority. We are rich in good works. We have an inheritance waiting for us, uncorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven. But ultimately, Jesus is our treasure, is he not? As Mr. Hyam put it, our God is the end of the journey. What makes heaven heaven? It is the Lamb who is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And we are so poor here as Western Christians because our lives are so materially better off than other Christians in the world. And we're so spoilt that somehow we just forget these joys that are ours. I've been greatly influenced by traveling to places like Moldova and Andhra Pradesh in India where the Christians are much, much worse off than we are in every sense, even in terms of Christian heritage. But they've got it. They've got it. They've got that simple trust in Jesus Christ. They've got that, I don't know how to put it, that um, vigorous joy in the Lord, even though things are going really badly for them. Isn't that the Christianity we need? Oh, give me that old-time religion. Give me that primitive New Testament Christianity. Uh, There's a... um, I don't know if it's an Afro-American spiritual or um, something else. Acres of diamonds, mountains of gold, rivers of silver, jewels untold. All these together couldn't buy you or me peace 
while we're sleeping or a conscience that's free. A satisfied mind, says an Afro-American spiritual song. A satisfied mind. That's what Christians in poorer countries display in abundance. Oh, may we have a satisfied mind because Christ is ours and he's in control and we have riches and he is our treasure. And then there is one rich uh, thing mentioned here which we need to look at as we close. The crown, the crown. And I'm not referring to the series on television. The crown of life. Oh, listen to him. Uh, where does he say uh, the crown? Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. What is this crown? It could be the victor's crown in the athletic games. Smyrna was famous for its athletic contests. But I think it was something to do with the geography of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, the centre of the city, was built around a hill. And all the great and uh, beautiful civic buildings were around this hill. They were built on terraces. And from a distance, it looked like a crown. Because you had the hill and then you had all these buildings around. And this is what Jesus is saying. You know, you are in this city, this beautiful city. It was well known for its beauty. You are in this rich city, but you are poor because of your religion. And I'm going to give you a crown that's much better than the crown of Smyrna. Douglas Kelly again. I will give you something far more lovely than the crown of Smyrna. What I give you will shine brightly in endless eternity when all the buildings in Smyrna have moulded into dust. As we sang, fading is the worldling's pleasures, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Oh, we're going to have a crown one day, a crown of righteousness, a crown of gold, a crown that the world can never offer us. And why, oh why, are we looking at the mud, raking the mud uh, like the chap in the interpreter's house in Pilgrim's Progress, the chap with a mud rake, obsessed about the mud, looking down and not realising that the Lord is holding a golden crown above his head. Why do we as Christians get dirty, as it were, in the things of this life? Why? When there's a crown, a crown one day. Let, let me finish you know this is encouragement for you and for me Jesus putting his hand on our shoulders and saying it's all right I am sovereign I know what you're going through I have conquered death you're coming back to me to the land of endless summer and you are rich in me I'm going to give you a crown let me mention one young lad who was in the church in Smyrna as this letter was being read he was 27 years old is there anybody here tonight around that age? That is when you're at your peak uh, in terms of creativity, apparently, 27. And this young lad heard this letter being read and he was converted and he took heed to Jesus' words to stand, to remain faithful. He became a pupil of John. John was his mentor and many years later, this lad even became the leader 
of the church in Smyrna. They called them bishops in those days. Do you know who his name was? Polycarp. Polycarp. And Polycarp, when he was an old man and still bishop of Smyrna, was put in prison. And he was given a choice. Say Caesar is Lord and will set you free. Deny Caesar and you will be burnt. He took heed to Jesus' words here. And do you know what he said? These are famous words. Eighty-six years have I served King Jesus, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? An old man, still faithful. He remembered Jesus' words. And then when the authorities threatened fire, the stake, burning, do you know what he said? Bring it on. Well, he didn't quite say that. He said something along these lines. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly extinguished, for you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishments. But why do you wait? Bring forth what you will. Bring it on. I'm ready. I'm going home. And my Jesus is king, not Caesar. And he's calling me home. And imagine Polycarp having heard this letter read when he was 27 years old. And as an old, old pastor, actually standing firm and being put to death, being burnt alive, his body going to ashes, but his spirit soaring and going over that river of death and going into the land of summer and hearing the only words that are worth hearing, well done, good and faithful servants. Are we going to hear that? Well done, good and faithful servants. Blessed, said Jesus, happy are you, not when everything is going well necessarily, not if you've got everything you want, but happy are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. We've had the privilege as a church in these last few months of seeing aged spiritual warriors, uh, men and women who've stood as Christians, ordinary men and women who've been faithful right to the end and they've been called home. And you know where they are now? They are now in the endless land of summer and it won't be long. One day we will leave the fever of this life and we will join them and we will really know then joy without end. But in the meantime, whatever problems may be facing you or I this coming week, may we go forward realizing that Jesus does all things well for his namesake.